Me again, you'll be sick looking at me this morning. I know, I know, I know. If you could open your Bible to James chapter 4, that's where we are today, James chapter 4. If you've got one with you or follow along on the screen, that's where we're we're, we're, we're looking today, James 4. Let me read God's Word to us. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this? that your passions are at war within you. You desire and you do not have, so you murder, you covet and not obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and you do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose it is to no purpose that the Scripture says he yearns jealously over the Spirit that he has made to dwell in us, but he gives more grace? Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before God, before the Lord, and He will exalt you. Let's pray before we open up this passage together. Let's pray. Father, we come before you today, and we hear your words. We've heard your word. And so even in this time, before we expound it, we ask for humility. We ask for humility to come under its authority. We ask for humility to hear your voice. We ask for humility to obey what you want us to do. Father, we come this morning in the realization, even from reading that passage, that this world is a broken place. And Father, we pray this morning that you would comfort those this morning that are hurting because of that brokenness, because of illness, because of disease, because of all sorts of brokenness. People are hurting all over our world, all over our country, all over this town, and all over this room. And so we pray for them. We pray that you would be the God that you have promised to be, and that you are the God of all comfort. Father, we pray for those who hurt this morning, that you would bring that peace that passes all understanding that we can't fathom, that we can't get to the bottom of, but we know that you've promised. Father, you have been good to us, even in the midst of this broken world, you have been good to us in providing for us a Savior. Father, we thank you so much this morning for King Jesus, who gave himself for us who still now sits at your right hand and intercedes for us. What an amazing thought this morning that King Jesus now is praying for us. Father, I pray that would humble us in itself. 
Father, we pray this morning for those who are struggling, uh, struggling financially at this at a, at a time when things are just tough. Uh, Father, help us to be a church that reaches. Help us to be a church that provides. Help us to be a church that acts. We pray for vision to see, and we pray for a willingness to go. Father, help us, we pray. Father, just as we come to your word now, show us what you want us to see. Speak to us whatever way you want to speak to us. Uh, we're, we're told in Scripture, by you, through Scripture, that it is good for everything. Whether to encourage, whether to rebuke, Whatever it is you want to say to us today, Lord, I pray that you do it. And it is in Jesus' name we come. And it is in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. So James chapter 4. James chapter 4. I always use a specific quote at the beginning of every member's class. Every membership class we have, I use this specific quote. It is from Charles Spurgeon. And this is the way it goes. I'll give you the whole quote. Give yourself to the church. You that are members of the church have not found it perfect. And I hope that you feel almost glad that you have not. If I had never joined a church till I had found a perfect one, I would have never joined one at all. And at the moment I did join it, I would have spoiled it. For it would not have been a perfect church after I had become a member of it. Still, and this is, this, is the phrase, this is one of the phrases of this quote that I want us to remember, still, it is the dearest place on earth to us. All who have given themselves to the Lord should as speedily as possible also give themselves to the Lord's people. How else is there to be a church on the earth? If it is right for anyone to refrain from membership in the church, it is right for everyone. Then the testimony for God would be lost to the world. As I have already said, the church is faulty. But that is no excuse for you not joining it. If you are the Lord's, nor need your own faults keep you back. For the church, the church is not an institution for perfect people, but a sanctuary for sinners saved by grace, who, though they are saved, are still sinners, and in need of all the help they can derive from the sympathy and guidance of their fellow believers. The church is the nursery for God's weak children, where they are nourished and grow strong. It is the fold for Christ's sheep, the home of Christ's family. What an amazing quote Spurgeon has given us about the church. And Charles Spurgeon, the prince of preachers as he was known, if he can hold the tension between it is the dearest place on earth and it is faulty and broken and full of sinners, surely that's the tension that we must hold also. And James is going to show us in chapter 4 exactly that. James here says, what causes quarrels and causes fights among you. Who's James writing to? The church. 
He's writing to the church. James here, the brother of Christ, is writing to the church, and he is opening up chapter 4 with a presumption that there are going to be quarrels and there are going to be fights in the church. <gasps> Who would have known? He says it's inevitable. James here asks two questions. He asks two diagnostic questions. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? And then he asks the second. They're both rhetorical. Is it not this? Your passions are at war within you. And what is, what's the source of the conflict? What's the source of the, 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 the fights among you? It's this. It is your selfish desire for personal pleasure and satisfaction. That's what causes it. That's what causes the problems. Selfish desire for satisfaction is the source of disunity and disharmony in the body of Christ. These are not the sorts of questions we're used to, we're used to being asked of us, are they? I don't normally get to the front and be like, why are you rowing? Why are you yapping about you? Why, 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 what's going on here? But this is what James is doing. James is literally speaking to the church and saying, why are these things going on? Why, why, why is this happening? I've been thinking a lot about that, that, this, this week and just about the nature of the Bible and about the New Testament in particular, right? Think about this. Here's a scenario for you. We talked about this in our night home group. Here's a scenario. Uh, most of the New Testament goes like this. Uh, I find out as an elder in this church that something is going on in another church in a local area, Right? and I know it's not right. So what I do is pen them a letter to tell them it's not right, right? And I rebuke them. So, so say it's another church, another, and I, I rebuke them for that, and I send them, how do you think that's going to go? Not good. not good, Ronnie. Not good. But you think about the New Testament, the Apostle Paul, especially in 1 Corinthians, he finds out something's going on in the church in Corinth, and he writes to them, and he rebukes them. He says, what are, you, what are you doing? Stop it. Cut it out. James here knows that there's something going on in the churches, knows that there's fights and quarrels amongst them, and he said, why is this going on? Here's why it's going on. You're selfish. How would that go? If I started to talk like the New Testament writers, I'm telling you, I would last a fortnight. Possibly a fortnight. Maybe not even. That's the Bible. That's what they do. They see something that's not right, not godly, not Christ-honoring, and they address it. And as we'll see as we go through this passage, they don't pull their punches. They say it for how it is. James here assumes, we don't know the details, I'm not even sure that he knows the details, he maybe does, but he assumes that there is going to be a problem of harmony within the church. When you come into a church, maybe you're a new believer, maybe you've been a believer for some time. I said old believer in the first service. That, that was probably apt for the general age range. But uh, an older believer, believer longer in the faith, I'll put it like that. Uh, if you've maybe come into the church first time, uh, or maybe you've, maybe come in, you've been, and you'd be like, I can't believe that there's people who don't get on. This, this, folks, 
Old Testament prophets, Jesus, Paul, James, all assume people aren't going to get on. That's, they're not, because we are sinful human beings. Now, here's the thing. We should not be surprised by it, but we should not become complacent about it. We should not be surprised by it, but we should not be complacent about it. That's why James is writing the letter. He wants to address it and fix it. We shouldn't be surprised, but we shouldn't be complacent either. James even calls this situation of disharmony war. That's how seriously he's going to take it. He is, he's addressing this issue, but he wants to take it really, really serious. Is it not that your passions are at war within you, your desires you do not have, so you murder, you covet, and you do not obtain, so you fight and quarrel? Where does this spiritual disunity come from? It comes from our desire from, for personal fulfillment and satisfaction. You see, we've got a war going on within us. That's the reality. We've got a war going on within us to tell us, to urge us, to satisfy all of our desires, our personal desires. And, and, and when, when, when James says here, is it not your passions are, are at war within you? We, we can think they're very, very, it's a base, carnal desire, passion. We can think it's one thing, but it's not. It's everything. It's everything. It is where we devote time, energy, money, interest, enthusiasm in every self-seeking way. That's what James is talking about. James sees the root of disharmony in the Christian life and in the Christian church with this self-promoting, self-satisfying desires that we have. And you see, we live in a world where everything is telling you that that's the way to go. Everything is telling us, serve yourself. Everything is telling us, promote yourself. Everything is telling us, you affirm yourself, you, you pamper yourself, you actualize yourself, you do whatever you need to do to look after number one. That's what the world is telling us. James tells us, you want to see the source of, of, of trouble, strife, bother between brothers and sisters? That's how you get it. Do all them things, you're in for a row. You see, self-promotion, self-actualization, whatever you want to call it, is the opposite of what James is telling us throughout the whole of the book. And unfortunately, some in the church, and I don't mean particularly Cornerstone, I mean the church, Big C, maybe in Cornerstone, but I, but I mean Big C, have also fallen into this idea, this worldview that it's all about us, that God exists even to make much of us, to give us all we need and all we desire. And it's the opposite of what James teaches. To put it another way, John Piper says this, Christ 
does not exist in order to make much of us. We exist in order to make much of Him. So what we've done is basically reversed the first question of the Westminster Catechism. What's man's chief end? Man's chief end is to what? Glorify God and enjoy Him forever. What we've, what, we've, what we've tended to do is make it, what's man's chief end? To get God to glorify Him. And when we don't get that, when we don't get the glory, when we don't get the position, when we don't get the acknowledgement, when we don't get what we think we deserve, quarrels and fights among you. Quarrels and fights among you. He literally spells it out here. Is it not your passions that are war within you, your desire, and you do not your desire, and you do not have, so you murder, you covet, and do not obtain. But what does this show us? It, it shows us something very clear. Verse, verse 2 especially, that, that section there, you desire and you do not have, so you murder, you covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. If you work that backwards, it shows us something. It shows us this. Broken relationships are evidence of a broken heart. Broken relationships are evidence of something going wrong in the heart. So we have these, just follow the flow, we have these passions and desire that are within us, not for God-glorifying purposes. So what do we do? We break outward relationships. He gives two examples there. You lost, so you don't have, so you, you murder, you covet. There's the second one. You see, these two things here, they, they show us, they represent self-focused, self-centered existence. It's all about us. And so when we don't have those things, that's when things go wrong. And we want those things and we don't get them, and then that's where things go wrong. But referring back even to last week, why, why is this? Because, because true wisdom, true wisdom we said last week was, began with the, our right fear of God. You see, this type of wisdom here begins with a fear of us and awe of us. The focus is not on God, but on us. Awe of me, respect of me, concern for me. True wisdom is the opposite. True wisdom just flips that right around. You see, these things represent a broken heart. James, every single time, will show us that outward actions, they only, they only show us one thing. They show us the state of our hearts. What causes quarrels and fights among you? Is it not your passions that are at war within you? You desire and you do not have, so you murder, you covet, and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. Then, all of a sudden, out of nowhere, like James does, he sort of flips the switch and goes in a different direction. Look, look at what he, look. So, just follow it. You desire and do not have, so you murder, you covet, and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. Where'd that come from? Where, where, where's, the, where's the flow? Literally, he, what he's done is, 
there's rows among you, there's, there's things going wrong among you. Here's why it is. And some of you, you don't even pray. I think James is going on a wee bit of a rant here. He's just lost the run of himself. It feels like a... And he's like, some you aren't even praying. You don't have because you don't ask. But actually what he's doing is, is, is very subtle. James saying you don't have because you don't ask is a reflection on the first couple of points that he's just made. What he said in the first couple of points is that your selfish desires are at war within you. So what do you try to do? You try to grab them yourself. Instead of submitting yourself to God and asking to God to provide what you need, you go after it yourself. You don't look to God for the answers. You don't look to God for your deepest, most profound, uh, legitimate uh, needs in life. You don't look to God. You just do it yourself. And so he says, a prayerless life, a prayerless life is another indication of these selfish desires that work in your heart because you want to do it. You want to do it. It says you do not ask, or you, do, you ask but you do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. Now, I'm sure, I'm sure no one in this room, and I'm not for one second going to accuse anybody in this room of praying for stuff so that they can use it on themselves. A sarcasm. That is. No, what, what, what I'm saying is this. Sometimes, I, I'll be honest, I have. God, give me such and such, or provide such and such, or just do such and such. But when we do that, we are literally treating God, and James is going to tell us not to do that. Don't do this. This is not right. James is going to say, stop treating God like a genie in a lamp. Stop coming to God and being like, oh, give me this so I can have it for myself and I can use it on myself and I can be whatever. I can be more comfortable or I can be more happy because I'll have this and I'll have... No, that is not how God works, James says. Stop treating him like a genie in a lamp and if you just rub the lamp the right way or say the right incantation of a prayer, then God will give you all the desires of your heart. James says, no, you're asking for the wrong motives. So you'll not get. You'll not get. Sometimes I think we can, we, can, we, can, we, can, we can look at a verse like that, right? And we can think, well, well John, does that mean that I, I couldn't pray that God would, would bless me in my work and that I would make a lot of money? No, it doesn't mean that. What your prayer should be is, God, bless me in my work and let me make as much money as I can so I can bless other people. Never ever hear me say that you should not be earning as much money as you can. You should. Go out and make the squalor, or I think that's what Isaac calls it. Uh, go out and make as much as you can so that you can bless other people. But you won't if your motives are wrong and selfish. God will not bless that prayer. 
God won't bless that prayer. James picks it up a notch. Remember, just, just, keep, in, just keep in mind here that the format that I've set out at the beginning where I'm going to write a letter to another church and just, just see how this would go. Uh, you, ask, you, do not, you ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. You adulterous people. How would that go down? wouldn't go down too well. You adulterous people. Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Who, therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. To have friendship with the world, folks, let's make no mistake, to have friendship with the world means that you are making yourself an enemy of God. You can have it one way or the other, but James tells us we can't have both. Why? Because God will have no rival for our hearts. God will have no rival for our hearts. The reality is, James says here, worldliness is spiritual adultery. If you try to be married to Christ and join to the world, you are committing spiritual adultery. And the godly life and true wisdom cannot be experienced by those who are worldly and selfish. Verse 5 gives us a summary of what has happened throughout all of the Bible. Look at verse 5 there, it says this, or do you suppose that it is of no purpose that the Scripture says He yearns jealously over the Spirit that He has made to dwell in us? What does that mean? Think of the story of the whole of Scripture. Think of the Old Testament story. What way did this go? It went like this. God set aside a people for Himself. They said that they would worship Him. They said that they would give Him all the glory and all the honor and all the things. And what did they do? They ran after false gods and committed spiritual adultery. What did He do? He went back after them again. Forgive them for their sin. They said, okay, we'll not do that again. We'll worship you and worship you only. Give them 10 minutes. What are they doing? Going again. God restores them. God comes back, forgives them for their sin. 10 minutes, they're at it again. That is the story of the Old Testament throughout. It's the story of the New Testament and it's the story of the church. But here's the thing. God jealously yearns for the hearts of His people. He will not stand for a rival. That is why the Old Testament gods were defeated over and over again, because they were rivaling God. Think of the prophets of Baal, defeated. Why? Because they were rivals to Yahweh, and He destroyed them, brought the people back to Himself. Folks, this should encourage you. God is jealously yearning for you. and all of you, and He will not stand for a rival. He wants all of you, all of you. 
Think of Jesus when he was restoring Peter. What was the question that he asked him? Do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me above all these others? God is jealously desirous of your heart. All of your heart. He wants you. He will have no rival. Then, there are some of the most, it's literally, if you follow the flow, it's just, it's, it's brilliant. It starts off, James starts off, what causes all these fights among you? It's your passions, it's your desires. You, 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 don't, you don't do this, you don't do that. You ask wrongly, you're not even praying. What, why do you think God, the Spirit, God wants all of you? And then, then there's this one we line, and it is the most beautiful line. And it is, but He gives more grace. He's just went on a complete rant, and then he just fires his line in, but He gives more grace. Is that not good news? He gives more grace. You see, when we're trying to sort all this out, in our own heads and in our own lives, in our own hearts, the last place that we should look to sort this out is ourselves. The one place that we should look to sort this out is the grace of God. You see, the grace of God is not just for coming into the Christian faith. The grace of God is not just the first step to get in through the door, and once we have our ticket, then that's it. No, the grace of God is what we should wallow in every single day day. It is the thing that grows us. You want to grow as a Christian, wallow in the grace of God. Wallow in the grace of God. If you want to, if you want to move on in your faith, wallow in the grace of God. But He gives more grace. That is the best news that we could hear this morning. God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. God's grace is the source of everything for the believer. Everything. But then James changes tone again. He goes from correction to grace to repentance. Correction to grace to repentance. Let me read these words to you. Draw near to God, and He will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and He will exalt you. Whilst James gives us this glorious little nugget of gold here in the middle, saying, God gives more grace, He also reminds us of how seriously we need to take our sin. 
he holds the two in, in, in perfect tension. He uses the language of repentance. You see, the folks, the reality is, the reality is we are in here this morning as part of Cornerstone Church. And the reality is that there will be broken relationships. There will be strife. There will be trouble. James is not foolish enough to think that there won't. But what he says is this, there is grace, but there is need for repentance. And I couldn't help but think when I read these words this week, I couldn't help think of King David. King David, the adulterous, murdering liar wrote these words. Let me read them to you. Psalm 139. Search me, O God. Know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. And see if there be any grievous way in me. And lead me in the way everlasting. When was the last time we prayed a prayer like that? When was the last time we came to our sin with this attitude that James tells us to come here? Draw near to God. Submit yourselves to God. Draw near to Him, and He will draw near to you. There's a, there's a fantastic promise in there. It doesn't matter, doesn't matter how sinful you see yourself as. doesn't matter what you've done, where you've been. Draw near to God, and He will draw near to you. But cleanse your hearts, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. When's the last time we wept over our sin? When's the last time we mourned over our sin? Whilst holding the tension of grace. This is the language of repentance. And what I want to do as we finish today is simply for us to spend a couple of moments praying that prayer of King David. Search me, O God. Know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. See if there be any grievous way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. Here's what I want to say about this. I had a conversation between services and it was really helpful. Let the distance between and see if there be any grievous way in me and lead me in the way everlasting be really, really small. God does not want us to navel gaze. God does not want us to be feeling sorry for ourselves. Woe is me and stay there. He doesn't want that. What He wants is for us to see our sin, repent of our sin, and wallow in the grace of God very, very quickly. All right? So don't stay here. Move to here. 
very, very quickly. So we're going to take two minutes, and we're just going to pray through this prayer, and then I'm going to lead us in communion. Let's pray. Father, we, we do pray collectively that we would just let you search our hearts. Know our hearts. Try our thoughts. And Father, if there is anything that we need to repent of, help us. Help us, we pray. Father, as we come to communion, help us to treat it the way that we should. But we thank you so much for Jesus and all that he has accomplished and all that he has done. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.